The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. As you turn there, I'd like to remind you as we're going through the book of Mark, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, that Jesus at this point in his ministry is now on the move. He's transitioning from Galilee. He's going into the surrounding areas. He's going to make his way into Jerusalem. And then as we wrap Mark up, we're going to cover the Passion Week. But as he moves around, his message has also begun to morph a bit. And now he's beginning to do things that only God has the power to do. We saw that Jesus has the power of creation when he created some 200,000 loaves of bread and 80,000 fish, give or take. Last week we saw that he has the power over creation as he's walking on water, something that Scripture says that only God could do or only through divine power. And then we see that Jesus begins to show for us the reality that the God who was once far from us has now united himself to us in the new creation. And so things are really beginning to shift gears here. As he's doing this, as Jesus has been on the ground for some year and a half now teaching about the kingdom of God, we've seen the conflict that comes from between him and, and the Pharisees, the religious elite of Judaism. These guys who prided themselves on their ability to keep God's law and therefore earn their own righteousness. We've seen the conflict. But today, things are really going to get ugly. All right, today, things get personal. Today, reality is going to be made known. And as we see this occur, we've got to ask our own selves, what if we've been wrong all along? What if our way of thinking has been wrong from the get-go? I mean, what if we've been just totally backwards in the way that we've been thinking through this whole Jesus thing? Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when people think one thing that's totally wrong and they act on it, it can be kind of amusing. I mean, who does not like watching a football player get a hold of a fumbled ball, hold it tight, run into the end zone, and then try to figure out why nobody else is cheering because he's in the wrong end zone? Or somebody that grabs a basketball and for some reason shoots it into the wrong basket. And they're, you know, excited, and then everyone's just kind of groaning. I mean, we enjoy these things. How many of us don't enjoy watching someone on Jeopardy or who wants to be a millionaire spitting out this answer, and as soon as they do or as soon as they say final answer, the light bulb goes off and they realize, oh, no, I meant to say that answer, but it's too late, and so they go home with, like, nothing on a simple question. We, we like watching people sometimes think one thing that's just totally wrong and, and it's too late to do anything about it. But sometimes it's not amusing because what if our wrong way of thinking actually winds up being the final nail in the coffin of our own damnation? I mean, what if our way of thinking is so wrong that it comes with eternal consequences? What if we've had it wrong all along? And so with that in mind, we're going to jump into Mark chapter 7, picking it up in verse 1. We find that Jesus is again being badgered by Pharisees, by some of the scribes who would come up from Jerusalem. And remember, these guys are only here. They're only checking Jesus out because they want to find some fault with him. They want to find some way in which he's violating the law of Moses. Because if they can show where he's violated the law of Moses, then they can discredit him as a rabbi. Because he's going around teaching a message that's radically 
opposed to what they're teaching or what they thought that God's Word taught. And as they're there trying to find things wrong with Jesus, they can't find anything. And that's no surprise to us, right? I mean, if Jesus is here on earth to fulfill His Father's law because we can't, and so He's living perfectly in our place, they're not going to find any kind of violation of the law. What they do find, though, is that Jesus' disciples, some of them are eating food without washing their hands first, which to them is problematic. Mark tells us that there are many traditions passed down from the elders, from the Jews of past, things like washing their hands before eating or uh, taking a bath, bathing when they come from the marketplace, and they're not going to eat until they do that. They had traditions that really dictated the way they washed their, their eating and drinking utensils even the way that they cleaned the dining couches that they would eat on. They're all about tradition, but Jesus and his disciples aren't doing this. They're not washing their hands before they eat. Now, we're not talking about just some lackadaisical hand washing. We're not talking about the somebody else is in the bathroom, so I'm going to at least get my hands wet so that they don't think I'm leaving the restroom without washing my hands. We're talking like some serious, hardcore, I mean what I do, hand washing here. One scholar tells us, this is what one Jewish scholar says, he said, for these ceremonial washings, the the way that the Jews would wash their hands before they ate, special stone vessels of water were kept because ordinary water might be unclean. So it's got to be water that's in these special stone containers. To wash your hands in a special way, you started by taking at least enough of this water to fill one and a half eggs. So you have to have at least that much water. And then what you do is you pour it over your fingers down towards the wrist, getting them in between your fingers, and then you would take your fist and kind of ball it into your palm and get all the dirt off. And then you would get the same amount of water and start at your wrist and wash all of that off of your fingers. I mean, they took their hand washing seriously. If it wasn't done like that, then their hands were still dirty. Some of the more strict Jews would actually do this in between each course of the meal that they're eating. One rabbi said that to eat bread with unwashed hands is no better than to eat excrement. They were serious about washing their hands. I mean, they didn't just have a little bottle of Purell and you go take a shot and and then you can get into your food. They, They took their hand washing seriously. Why? Because they didn't want to contaminate their food. Their food's clean, right? Because God was all about this food is clean, this food is unclean, so you need to make sure that you're eating clean food and And if your hands are dirty and you eat clean food, then then you're probably making that food dirty and therefore you're eating this unclean food. But see, the thing is, the hand washing, that wasn't a commandment of God. This was something that the Pharisees had put into place, an extra level of protection so that they wouldn't violate the law of God because they wanted to protect their own cleanliness. They didn't want to become unclean. And so for so long, for I don't know how many hundreds of years, it had just been the practice of God's people to wash before they ate. But Jesus' disciples weren't doing this. Not all of them. And the Pharisees and the scribes jump on that. They say, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but but eat with defiled hands? Oh boy, y'all done screwed up now. Your hands is filthy. And they got a serious problem with this. And I think that Jesus' patience is beginning to wane a little bit. Look at his response. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? And up to that point, it sounded good, right? Isaiah did good prophesying of you, but 
But then he throws in this word hypocrite. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's you, Jesus said. Isaiah is talking about you, teaching as commandments of of God these traditions of yours. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Oh, and you have a fine way, Jesus said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses says, honor your father and mother. Moses said, whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you, you guys, what you're saying is that the money that you have that your parents are in desperate need of, you're holding that back from them saying, well, well, no, this is a gift for God. And yet you're going to say that you're keeping the law? I said, no. No, you're really good at rejecting God's law for your own traditions. You have made void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and such many things you do. You're all about your own commandments. You want to jump on me for not keeping your traditions? Your traditions have trumped the word of God. And Jesus has a problem with this. And so then Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Listen to me carefully. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. What? (laughs) What did you just say? Did, Did he really just say? That there is nothing outside of us that upon our eating makes us unclean. Jesus, haven't you read the law of Moses? You know we can't eat pork. You know we can't eat lobster. You know that we can't just fry up some frog legs and enjoy it. Those things will make us unclean. The law of Moses says that they're unclean. What are you talking about? Now, I don't know what transpired immediately after Jesus said this, but Matthew tells us in his account that later some of Jesus' disciples came up to him and said, uh, Jesus, do you know that you made the Pharisees mad when you said that? <laughs> yeah, you think? Yeah, I think Jesus knew it made them mad. But his disciples pressed him on it because they knew the law of Moses. They knew what the law taught regarding foods that were clean and unclean, and something wasn't really meshing with them. Because it seemed like Jesus was acting counterintuitively concerning the law of Moses. So Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? You don't get this? You're not seeing this? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And with that simple statement, Mark tells us, that Jesus declared all foods clean. I mean, how much of the law of Moses did that unravel? How much time, how much effort had gone into these Jews trying to make sure through hand washing, through food selection, through these dietary restraints, how much effort do you think they went through trying to make sure that they didn't eat unclean food, and yet Jesus is saying, food can't make you unclean. See, the Jews were of the mindset that they were clean to begin with. In the mind of the Jews, they're clean. They have gained the righteousness of God through their obedience to the law. 
And so that's why they were so fanatical with hand washing. They, they didn't want to try to destroy that. But see, here's the problem. Righteousness in the sight of God was never based on external performance. It was never based on the food you ate. It was never based on the rules that you kept, on the rules that you broke. It's always been based on what God sees inwardly. And the problem with that is that what's within isn't so pretty. And so Jesus continues. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. It's not about the food you eat. It's not about washing your hands and making sure that your food isn't contaminated by dirt. The problem is what comes from within. And so, of course, this begs the question, are we depraved in the sight of God because of the things that we do or because of who we are inwardly? What comes first, the chicken or the egg? Are we considered righteous until we have these impure thoughts? Or do we have these impure thoughts because we're not righteous in the first place? Was Pelagius right? Are we born with a clean slate? Are we born with the ability to choose good or, or choose bad? Are we righteous until we mess it up? No. I think Scripture is pretty clear on this point. Paul says there are none righteous. There are none without sin. All have sinned. Death passed upon all men through the sin of Adam. There are no blank slates. So, so what is Jesus talking about here? What is he talking about when he says that all of these thoughts come from within a man and they defy him? Well, to really wrap our minds around this concept, I need for us to put on our thinking caps, play with our imagination, and I want to try to present a picture that will hopefully be beneficial as we wrap our mind around what it is that Jesus is getting at. And so I want you to imagine with me that your body is like a well, a reservoir, a, a container of water. All right, some of us have larger containers than others. Random thought for the day. Picture yourself as a container of water. Buried deeply within you is this wellspring, the source from which this water comes. Now think for me, what happens if this wellspring is, is poisoned? Okay, as this thing that's deep within you begins to push this water out and it, and it gushes out and it starts to fill you up and, and expand and get larger so that finally you're overflowing with this, what are you overflowing with? With poisoned water, right? And so it's going to come out in your actions. It's going to come out in your thoughts because it starts at the core of you and works its way outward. So Jesus says all these things, this lying, this arrogance, Envy, the sexual immorality, the stealing, the murder, all of those things that come from, from within your body are indicative of a poisoned wellspring within your body. And so the problem was never eating food that was unclean. The problem has always been what's going on in here. Because the wellspring is our heart, and here's the problem. If our heart, and I'm not talking about the, the blood pumping muscle within us, but I'm talking about the very core of who we are, that essence within that shapes everything else, if that's corrupted, we have a problem. Because all that's going to do is it's going to lead to corrupted thinking and corrupted actions. And so here's why the message of Jesus was so radically offensive to these Pharisees he was talking to. 
while they were thinking themselves righteous based on their external adherence to these laws of God, which they weren't even really good at keeping in the first place, they thought that their righteousness was based on that, but Jesus said it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with what's within. And so they had been thinking for thousands of years that if I just perform a certain way, if I just live a certain way, if I just keep these rules in a certain way, then God's going to look at me and I'm clean. And Jesus says, no, because he's going to look at your heart and it's filthy, it's corrupted. Jesus was telling these men who were so radically fallen that they were completely and utterly missing the point. It wasn't about the law. It wasn't about religion. It wasn't about their actions. It was about their heart. We don't need clean hands and clean food. Jesus said, you need a clean heart. Jesus said, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. It's not about the law. It's about what's inside. And so let's put this into perspective. All right, we're going to zoom back a little bit, dig into our history a little bit, and just try to wrap our minds around how things have got to where they are and then how this problem is going to be resolved. Because if the Pharisees had a problem within, then certainly all of us have a problem within, right? And so let's do a little bit of history here this morning. Almost 2,000 years ago, after saying that a descendant of Adam and Eve was ultimately going to crush the head of Satan, we see that God approaches a man by the name of Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to make out of you a nation of people. All right, and I'm going to bless your descendants. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. I'm going to watch their back. I'm going to bless them in ways that I won't bless any other nation. And through you, Abraham, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. And we begin to see that promise come to fruition in the birth of Abraham's son, Isaac. And then Isaac fathers this man by the name of Jacob, who God later renames as Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons, and as each of these sons becomes the head of their various tribe, we see this collective body of individuals come to be known as Israel, or Hebrews, or Jews. They were God's people. And so part of God's interactions with Israel included giving them this thing that we call the Law of Moses. It was this body of commands that was going to dictate the way that they lived as God's people. And if they obeyed God, if they kept this law, then God promised various blessings. You do this, and then I will bless you. But the flip side of that coin is God said, if you don't do this, well, instead of blessings, there will be curses. There will be repercussions. But graciously and lovingly, God withheld those judgments largely from Israel. I mean, don't get me wrong. Somebody paid for that. But God's judgment was placed on the shoulders of another And so as centuries pass, we continually see God's people fall away from God. They turn their back on the law, on God's standard for their way of life, and they embrace other gods, and they say, well, no, we we don't want you, God. We want these other gods, and and we think that they're going to benefit us more than you benefit us. And, And there's just this spiritual tug of war going on between God and the nation of Israel. But see, here's the thing. This story fundamentally is not about us. It's not about Israel. It's not about keeping the law. It's not about heaven or hell. At the core of this story, it's about God. It's about His holiness. It's about His fame. It's about His desire to create a people for Himself who would glorify Him on this planet full of fallen individuals. But what happens when they refuse to act the way that God says to? God says, you're my people. Live this way. Look like this. I'm holy you be holy. I'm perfect, you be perfect. I want you to reflect me to the nations around you so that they can see me and worship me. But what happens when God's people say, nah, that's all right. I think I'm going to do something else. 
I think that I'm going to pursue my own goals. Sorry, God, I'm not going to obey you. That's not what my heart wants. Because it wasn't. Because fundamentally, at the heart of each of these individuals, they were worshiping themselves as God. The same thing that even now we still stubbornly try to do. See, through the fall, through Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden, man's heart, the wellspring, the the central core of who we are, became radically sinful. It became rotten. And because the core of us was rotten, everything else began to follow. And so as a result, all of those who were born of Adam, which is us, all of those who were descendants of Abraham, non-descendants of Abraham, doesn't even really matter at this point because we're all born fundamentally corrupted from a wellspring that is poisoned with sin. And as we get older, our actions begin to show the influence of this rotten core that we have. And so what happens when God builds for himself a nation of people, a collective group of individuals, and God says, I want you to live in this manner that's pleasing to me? What happens when God sets that up, but then this nation of people collectively say, no, that's okay, God, we don't want that? Well, what happens is that now you have God being defamed by these people that are supposed to bring glory to him. What happens is you have this people of God known as Israel who are now the cause for God being mocked by other nations. (laughs) Look at Israel, supposedly worshiping this God that can't even moderate their behavior. Look at Israel. They worship Yahweh, but, but they're no different from us, and half of them are joining us in worshiping our gods. There's nothing different about Israel. Why should we worship the God of Israel when there is no difference between them and us? And what happens in all of that is that God's name gets dragged through the mud. So he's really got two options now. He can destroy Israel, completely obliterate them, which crossed his mind more than once. Or he can change Israel. And that's what he does. Prophet Jeremiah speaks of it in Jeremiah 31, 31. A little bit more Old Testament here. This is long before Christ came. Jeremiah tells us, that behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. God says, I'm not going to make another one like that. I'm not going to make this covenant that is largely bound by their ability to obey it, and if they do, I'll bless them, and if they break it. No, no, this is going to be something radically different. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them To the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And that sounds good, right? It sounds great that God is going to do this work where he puts his law inside of us on our hearts, but but wait a minute, because Jeremiah has already told us previously that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. They are desperately sick. Who can know the heart? And so what good is it going to be if God does a work within our heart if our heart is radically wicked and opposed to everything that God is? What good is it going to be if he tries to do a work within our hearts and our hearts are dead, corrupted, and radically against God? How is this new covenant going to work? 
Jesus says that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, but God's going to do a work in the heart. And, well, how does this mesh together? Well, we don't even have to go to the New Testament to answer that question. Let's look at the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 22. We read, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. This is God speaking through Israel. Now, I want to, I want to slow down here. Let's wrap our minds around this. God says to this collective nation of Israel, who is radically far from God in their rebellion and their disobedience, so that their actions are leading them to eternal damnation. And God says, it is not for your sake that I'm about to act. I'm not doing this for you, Israel. God says, I'm about to act for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. God has finally had enough of his name being dragged through the mud by his people, supposedly his people. He said, The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And so the entire, maybe not the entire purpose, but the driving motivator behind this new covenant that God is going to bring to us isn't necessarily about our benefit. It's not primarily about our enjoying God. It's not primarily about saving people from hell and redeeming them and rescuing them and bringing them into eternal life with God. God says, I'm doing this because if I don't, people will continue to say that I'm no God at all. And God is not going to stand for that. Again, he's got two options. Obliterate these people that bear his name or make them into his image bearers. And so God describes this process in verse 24. And I'm going to emphasize the personal pronoun here so that we can wrap our minds around the role of God in this regenerating work. He says in verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you, here it is, a new heart. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, that spiritually dead, decayed, rotten, anti-God, anti-holiness, self-servant heart. I will remove that. I will cut it out of you and give you a heart of flesh, a living, breathing, beaten, functioning, Christ-loving, Jesus-worshiping heart. I will put that within you. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so the new covenant works only because there is a new creation. There must be. Because God will not unite himself to fallen people. God will not create an uninhabitable temple for his spirit. There's got to be a work of creation within before God can place His Spirit within. That's one of the most beautiful elements of the new covenant is the new creation. For God to dwell in the heart of a man, there must be a new heart, a new wellspring, a new core from which everything else flows. Jesus told this to Nicodemus in John 3. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God much less enter it, you must be born again. 
And so Jesus' point to his hearers as they are gathered around him and he has radically turned the law on its head and seeming to unravel all of it, his point is that it's not about the religious externals that you're not even good at doing in the first place. It's about that heart transplant that we need. And these Pharisees are throwing a fit because Jesus' disciples aren't washing their hands? I mean, can you see the absurdity in that? These self-righteous religious people trying to crack on Jesus and his disciples because they didn't wash their hands right. And Jesus says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites because you don't give a hoot about the commandment of God. You favor your traditions over them and you've missed the point entirely. The problem is within, Jesus said. And let me tell you this, there's nothing a religious person hates to hear more than somebody saying that all their external religious actions will not matter a bit in God's eyes when it comes to their righteousness. They hate to hear it. Almost as much as a legalist hates to hear that their actions aren't going to make God any more happy with them or love them any more than what he does. Jesus said the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so here's how this works. This is why we need this heart transplant, because apart from it, we're not going to seek God. Apart from it, we're not going to love God. It is vital that we receive this. And so this is how it works. Though we will not seek God, God demonstrates his love for us. And that what? While we were yet sinners, while every single one of us that are in this room, of course we weren't even born yet, but while humanity as a whole was in this state of spiritual deadness, at that point God sent his son. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He didn't say, why don't you change that wellspring within your body? Why don't you change your heart? And when you do that, I'm going to send my son, and then he'll redeem you. If he had waited for that to happen, none of us would be saved. While we were sinners, he sent his son. And so on his cross, Jesus stood in the place of lawbreakers. He took their sins upon himself. He absorbed his father's wrath so that now God can justly forgive people because of the punishment that Jesus underwent on our behalf. And so in his death, Jesus purchased our redemption. In his burial, he promised the forgiveness of our sins, that they would be removed from us, so that when God says, I will no longer remember their sins, we can believe that it's true. And in his resurrection, Jesus promises new life to those who believe, and that new life comes in our conversion when God takes out that heart of stone and supernaturally gives us that heart of flesh, so that we now have a new wellspring, so that our heart is new so that God can put his spirit within us to direct our way of life so that it's not about looking at a list of rules of scripture and trying to abide by them. It's about responding to the work of the Holy Spirit. Have we forgotten that this is a supernatural faith that we have? And we have dumbed it down into, yeah, I believe in God and if I pray this prayer, I'll go to heaven, but, but there's no supernatural power in my life now. We're missing it. Even now, if we are in Christ by faith, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has placed himself within us so that as a result, everything that springs out from that begins to change. And so if you're here this morning and you're, and you're still on the fence and you're trying to figure out, well, well where does that leave me? Well, what do I do with my faith? Am I going to trust in my own works? Am, am I going to trust that I'm good enough? I, I say, no, don't trust yourself because Jesus said it's not about your works. It's about what's going on in here. And so if you're sitting here and you've not trusted Christ as Savior, I beg you, do it. 
Because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. It's not about religion. It's not about works. And so as our band comes forward, we're going to wrap this thing up a little bit, but I want to touch on a couple more issues. Because there's a disconnect here. All right, there are some issues that we face that I don't think that Jesus' hearers would understand. But I think that Mark's readers could resonate with this, and I think that we can as well, because, because here's the problem. If the old heart, that central core within our being, if our old heart was spiritually corrupted, and from that came all of these sinful actions, what does it mean now if we've been given a new heart, but yet we're still seeing some of these same sins? Or in other words, if there is truly a new creation, a new core, a new inner man, a new temple of the Holy Spirit, then how do we reconcile that with the things that we still wrestle with? So maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, Richard, this sounds great, and I'm glad that there is a new creation in the new covenant, but, but I'm still wrestling with pride. And I'm still struggling with, with this issue and with this issue, and, and I'm weak over here. And, and if I'm still seeing these things within my life that are not reflective of God's perfect character, well, does it mean that I don't have God's Spirit within me? Does it mean that I'm not a new creation? Does it mean that I'm not saved? And I would say, I'd say no, it doesn't mean that at all. Because think about this. God has replaced that wellspring, right? And so this well of sin, of utter depravity, that has a new heart within, a new wellspring, that is pushing out pure, undefiled water. As that replacement happens, is it going to instantaneously change the entire reservoir to holy water? Well, no, it's, it's got to be turned on, right? And so as water flows out from this new source and begins to push out the old water, eventually all that you see is going to be a reflection of this clean water. But I will tell you that on this side of heaven, we're not going to see that. We're going to see in increasing increments, faster for some people, slower for others. I mean, the writer of Hebrews said to his audience, some of you should be teaching by now, but you're like spiritual babies. And so it's a process by which outwardly we begin to reflect what has happened inwardly. And thank goodness God doesn't even see the well anymore. God doesn't see the well. God sees that well spring. And when he sees that, he sees it as the righteousness of his own son. And so for us Christians today, it's not about trying to gain God's favor, frantically trying to make our flesh conform to the law of God. It's about living out the reality that inwardly there is a new creation. That inwardly, in our new man, in our new hearts, we are holy. We are pure. We are sanctified. And so the question for us begins to be, how do we take what's inside us and use that to transform the rest of us? And Paul says that that happens through the renewing of our minds. Think of your mind as a valve on that wellspring. All right, it's that little wheel on the spigot. Our minds, as we dwell on the gospel, as we dwell on the reality that we are forgiven, that we are new creatures, that we are in Christ, that Jesus loved us so much that he took every single one of our sins and paid for it because we couldn't. As we begin to think about that, 
that begins to open that nozzle wide open. And the power of the Holy Spirit is released into us. I'm sounding really super spiritual now, but, but as we think about the gospel and realize that the work has already been done, that the new creation is in place, it begins to transform us outwardly into holy people. But we got to get this, we got to understand this. Inwardly, what God sees is holy. So don't think that you've got to work for that. Don't think that you've got to work for that. Advancement in our Christian walk comes through the intentional renewing of our mind by which we realize that it's already done. In God's eyes, it's a done deal. We can never displease Him. We can never make Him love us less. He will never regret saving us because when He sees us, He sees the righteousness of His own Son. And so as we enter into our time of response this morning, we're going to put our journey marker on the screen. I want you to think about it. I want you to believe it. I want it to permeate you. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. But, praise God, in the new creation, there is a new heart. You say, well, Richard, what do you want from me in this time of response? What are you asking out of me? Well, I would say that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower, I would just simply say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you're aware that you need this heart transplant, beg God for it. I promise you, your prayer will not fall on deaf ears. Throw yourself at the foot of the cross. Relinquish control of your own life to God and say, God, I am ready for your way because my way is never going to work. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're a follower of Christ, then your action item, so to speak, is to sit there, to think about the gospel and to realize that there is a new creation within. Maybe you need to confess some sin. Not to gain God's forgiveness, but simply to say, okay, God, I'm an idiot for thinking that I could make you love me more than what you already do. Because so often we work for that. And we get wrapped up in the externals of trying to please God when the reality is He's pleased already. And so in our time of response, quit trying. Quit trying to be good and just be. Because to God, you already are. So as we pray this morning, Walt and I are going to be in the back. If you want somebody to talk to, if you have questions about this whole Christianity thing, if I have really confused you, uh, we're here to answer questions for you. If you want to talk to us in the back, that's great. If you want to talk to us somewhere else during the week on the phone, we don't want you to leave with any question unanswered. So Father, as we wrap up this morning, Lord, we thank you for so much. Father, as we see Jesus confront these religious people who are so wrapped up on external performance to their own traditions, who are totally blinded to the reality that the problem is not actions, the problem is the heart. Father, if you had not acted, we would still have that problem. We would still have fallen, depraved, wicked hearts. But Lord, in this new covenant, that Christ enacted in His death, burial, and resurrection, You now give new life. You have taken from us the heart of stone and given us the heart of flesh. You've placed Your Spirit within us. So Father, I pray that as we renew our minds to that reality, as that begins to transform us, Lord, our lives are designed to be an obedient act of worship. Just our way of saying thank You for what You've done. It's not about us gaining Your favor. It's not about earning brownie points. 
Father, I pray and I know that You've forgiven us even now for that foolishness, but I pray that You would protect us from it. Help us embrace the new creation. Help us to rest in the reality of the cross. We thank You for that in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.